the goal of our company is to do as much good in the world as we can. And so with the sale of every pound of our product, we know we're making the world a better place. We want to have the maximum impact. And so we're not trying to compete against anybody in the marketplace. We're trying to help them do better. In the same way that digital photography helped to reduce the cost per photo, we are going to help reduce the cost per gram of protein. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Paul Shapiro. Paul is the CEO of The Better Meat Company, a business-to-business company that produces plant-based proteins and sells them to institutional food sellers and meat processors. Paul previously worked in animal rights advocacy at the Humane Society and is the host of the Business for Good podcast. He is also the author of Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the world. Welcome, Paul. So great to have you. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, Ed. So great to be on with both of you. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to talk about you and your business. Your background is extensive, so I don't want to skip over that before we touch on the Better Meat Company. Can you tell us about being a leader in food sustainability and animal welfare and what drew you to find passions in those areas? Yeah, Eva. So, uh, you know, my whole life I have had a love for animals and a passion for protecting them ever since I was a little kid. I remember always uh, thinking that animals cut the short end of the stick. And I, I felt like they were even like my family's dogs. I never felt of them like they were property, but rather I felt like they were kind of like my, my brothers and sisters. And in fact, I would say when I was a kid that I probably loved my family's dogs more than my biological members of my family at some point. So that wouldn't be true now, but back then it might have been. When I was an early teenager, I began to learn about what we do to animals uh, on factory farms and, and elsewhere for industrial purposes. And I was really horrified. And I thought, you know, why would we ever allow any of this to happen, to lock animals in tiny cages where they can't even turn around for their whole lives, uh, to put them inside of spaces where they can't even spread their wings for years on end? And it was very shocking to me to learn that those are not abnormal practices, but rather they're customary agricultural practices. And that was really distressing to me. And, and so it got me involved in a, a two-decade-long career in animal advocacy, of which I'm proud and I'm really grateful to have done that. And I I feel like I was part of a team during those two decades that really got a lot done to help improve the lot of a large number of animals. But I have in the last like five years really been contemplating whether food technology could do maybe even a more efficient job of helping to improve the plight of animals, especially farm animals, than what I was doing, at least in the nonprofit side of things. And as a result of that, I wrote a book called Clean Meat, which you generously included in the introduction, which really explores that premise, this promise that maybe entrepreneurs and investors and scientists can come together and find solutions that render our current methods of food production archaic. And that way we can change our behavior 
not necessarily because we thought it was the right thing to do, but because it became the more convenient or the tastier or the cheaper thing to do. I'm still, you know, working my life to try to help animals and the planet. I'm just doing it in a different manner now as an entrepreneur, as opposed to a nonprofit advocate. So when did you start the Better Meat Company? Better Meat Co. was actually started two years ago this week. So we're recording this in uh, mid-May 2020, and we are exactly two years old now. And what we're, the whole premise of what we're doing is basically creating ingredients that meat companies can incorporate into their meat so they can use fewer animals. So let me give you an example, Ed. Many people are aware that Burger King now has the Impossible Whopper. That's awesome. It's a great product. I love it. I've bought it many times, but it's still a tiny little fraction of their sales at Burger King and actual conventional Whopper sales have not declined as a result of it. It's not doesn't appear to be cannibalizing the sales of the current Whopper. And, you know, the purpose, like if you talk to Pat Brown, the CEO of Impossible Foods, somebody who I greatly admire, and he'll say their purpose is to replace animals in the food chain. In this particular case, it's a very small portion of Burger King's sales, apparently, and it hasn't cannibalized the Whopper sales. Now, I think it's fantastic. It does enormous amounts of good to have it there. Uh, it's a huge breakthrough moment, in my opinion. But what if, in addition to offering the Impossible Whopper, Burger King, let's say, would make its convention Whopper, let's say 25 or 30% plant-based. So now everybody who's going in and getting a regular Whopper is going to be eating two-thirds or one-quarter less meat. That would be a major reduction in meat consumption without having to make people switch what they would normally order or pay more than what they would normally order. And so what we're doing is supplemental to the plant-based meat industry. In addition to what they're doing, which is offering entirely plant-based products that are very good, they taste great, but they're typically sold at prices that are much higher than conventional meat. We're offering ingredients to meat companies that allows them to seamlessly blend our plant protein formulas into their ground meats so the consumer will never notice a difference, but the products will be better for the planet better for animals and better for their own consumer's health because they'll have less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, and so on. As you know, my wife is a vegan and my daughter is a vegan. I call myself about a 95 percenter, which means that I eat about 95 percent plant-based. When I think about the benefits of plant-based protein in particular, I think about three possible axes. The first is the environmental benefit, so you don't have the impact of uh, animal agriculture on water supplies or you know methane. Then you've got the potential health benefits of just like less cholesterol and some of those things. And then you have finally the sort of let's say the moral benefit, which is you know just less of the suffering, if you will, of animals for food. On the health and the environmental benefits, it's like very clear, it's very linear benefit that like 25% less of meat is like 25% less impact on the environment or quite a bit less because the plant-based protein has a lot lower impact. And I think on the health side too, but when you get to the moral issue, I think that's probably the one that you get asked about the most. And it's sort of like, and this is coming from somebody who's not vegan. Is it is it really better that just fewer animals suffer? Can you shed some light on how you think about that? Yeah, and you raise a lot of points for which I'm grateful and I want to address them all. So first about you personally, man, let me tell you, if you're doing 95% vegan, I, I'm, I think that you shouldn't be so purist. I'd say you're probably pretty much a vegan. So I, I decided to become vegan in 1993. 27 years ago. I, I think it's, I'm very glad that I did it. Like you, my wife is also a vegan. And I think that there's too much 
Puritanism in that movement, of which I am a part of that movement. But I, I am really speaking to this question of, you know, like whether you have to be 100% or whether that's even realistic. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. So imagine, you know, if you're talking to somebody and they say, well, I'm a Christian. You say, oh, great. So you follow the Ten Commandments, right? And they say, uh, yeah. And they say, okay, so you observe the Sabbath. And they're like, well, no, I don't do that one. They're like, well, you don't say they're not a Christian. Like if they identify as a Christian, you just say that. And vegan eating is not a religion. You know, it's not some, there's not some orthodoxy that you need to adhere to. And in the same way that you would consider somebody a Christian, even if they don't adhere to all the Ten Commandments, let alone all the other rules in the Bible, I do think that there ought to be a more flexible view of the, of vegan and that, you know, if you're eating 95% of your calories from, from vegan foods, uh, you know, that's, a, that's pretty awesome. My hat's off to you. I, I, would, I wouldn't worry about it. But to answer your question directly now, Ed, I would go so far as to say that it's not just that, yes, it's better for the environment. Yes, it's better for, for your health. It's dramatically better for animals. And here's why. No, these products are not going to be good for vegans. Obviously, they still contain meat in them, needless to say. But I believe that this strategy will help reduce the number of animals needed for food production even faster than anything else. And here's why. Imagine, for example, that, you know, you're a director of a cafeteria, like a corporate dining cafeteria, and you serve, let's say, pork sausages. They're, uh, they're solely made out of pork. And then you decide you're going to offer a vegan sausage next to it. And by some miracle, it's going to be sold for the same exact price. That, of course, never happens. But just imagine for the sake of the thought experiment that there's a vegan sausage now. So lunchtime opens up, employees start filing in, they go there and they're, they're now faced with a choice the pork sausage, or they can buy the the vegan sausage. The percent of people who are going to buy that vegan sausage who would have bought the pork sausage is extremely low, well under 5%. In fact, plant-based meat is right now less than 1% of the meat market. So if you think about like plant-based milk, it's about 13% of the milk that's sold in the country is is coming from plant-based sources, whereas 87% is coming from, from cows. But in the meat aisle and in meat in general, it's still well over 99% of meat that's sold is coming from animals and less than 1% from plants. And in this particular thought experiment, typically what happens is you might have one or two or 3% shifting from the pork to the plant-based sausage. But if in addition to offering that plant-based sausage, they also were to blend their pork, so let's say it was a 50-50 blend of pork and plant-based material, you would be reducing pork consumption in that case, not one or 2%, but 50%. And so if your goal is to actually spare animals, I think that blending, while it isn't gonna create new vegan products that vegans themselves are gonna go out and enjoy eating, it does, I think, a faster job in the near term of actually making the type of sustainability and animal welfare dense that you're trying to make. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting mm -hmm. for Eva to ask a question there. Mm -hmm. I was just digesting all of that. Um, no yeah. pun intended. Ooh, ba I like the pun. <laughs> it's a very good one. Yeah, well, I was just going to say real quick before Eva jumps in that for me, the reason why I do 95% is because I see the, maybe in the same way that you're describing, I see the benefits of uh, plant-based as being linear. So like 5%, plant-based is better than zero and 25% is linearly yes. that much, but that the effort required to get to a hundred percent is actually exponential. And so like to, to be a hundred percent plant-based is way harder than being 97% plant-based. It's like more than three. Yeah. And so that's why yeah. I chose it. Cause I don't want to put in the effort for that last 5%. It's too much work. Yeah. And it's a really good point, Ed, because not only is it much harder to do, 
but the actual benefits to the world or to animals are much smaller as well. Like you don't want people to think, oh, well, it's all or nothing. If I can't do it all, then I should do nothing. Because when you're faced with all or nothing, most people choose nothing. And in that case, that that final three or five percent that you're referring to is so inconsequential compared to the 95 or 97 percent that you've already done that I just wouldn't worry about it that much. Now, I think that there are some like hardcore folks out there who will say no. There's a bright line, and you know you've got to meet it. You got to be it. Try to be as pure as you know whatever as possible. But it's not really how the world works for most people. And I think that you know when you look at meat industry journals, like they get concerned if demand goes down one or two percent. Like that's a big deal to them. So if people followed in your footsteps in and had a 95% reduction, uh, I mean, you know, it would be a, a much different and better world. I'm just fascinated by this. So I grew up in a family that would make its own tofu and was relatively plant-based. And then I had a period in my life where I was vegan and it didn't work out for me nutritionally, but I'm also very plant-based now. I don't know. I'm definitely not 95%, probably 60%. I wanted to address something about the actual product that perhaps you could shed more light on, Paul. My challenge with alternative meat was always that I'd rather put less meat in my body than put in a substitute or some sort of product. And I'm, I'm speaking from like, you know, the, the early 2000s, where, which is the period that I was vegan, where I think there was a lot more soy, there was a lot less awareness around these products. But can you speak about the nutritional value of the blend that you've created? You know, first and foremost, when we're talking about blending, you know, keep in mind, we're talking about a pretty high inclusion rate. So our products from the Better Meat Co. are designed to be blended into the manufacturer's ground meat products at anywhere from a 30 to 50% rate inclusion rate. And so what that means is automatically you're going to have 30 to 50% less cholesterol. You're going to have about the same reduction in saturated fat. And you're going to have a double digit reduction in calories. And you're also going to be increasing fiber. And the fiber is an especially important point because most Americans are fiber deficient. You know, when you talk about uh, meat reduction or even plant-based eating, one of the first things that typically comes up in people's minds is protein. But the chances of you or anyone you know being protein deficient are virtually zero. Protein deficiency is essentially non-existent in America. In fact, we eat way more protein than we actually need, whereas fiber deficiency is widespread. More than 90% of Americans are fiber deficient. And so that means that nearly every person listening to this is, is fiber deficient. And there is no fiber in meat. It's completely devoid of it. Fiber is in plant foods because it's essentially like the skeleton that keeps the plant up. Since they don't have skeletons, they have fiber, and that's what keeps the plant standing upright. And so we need fiber. Lack of fiber is associated with all types of so-called diseases of affluence, and we can reduce our risk of all types of illnesses by increasing the amount of fiber in our diets. And if people aren't going to eat vegetables or fruits, which of course we should, I hope that people will, but if, even if they do, in addition, we can put fiber in the products that people are already eating, which is meat. And so, yeah, when you blend this, you're going to have big reductions in saturated fat, cholesterol, and calories, but you're also going to have an increase in fiber. And so uh, I'll give you an example. If you look at Purdue Chicken, which is uh, one of the uh, one of the Better Meat Co's customers, they're like one of the big poultry giants in America. They uh, now manufacture a product called Purdue Chicken Plus, and Chicken Plus is a blended 
chicken nugget, chicken tender, and chicken patty. It's 50% plant-based, 50% chicken. It includes better meat co, plant protein formula ingredients in there. And you get a quarter cup of vegetable servings per serving of the chicken nuggets that you eat. And it's not like you're going to cut open the nugget and see vegetables. It looks like a regular chicken nugget. You can't see the difference or taste the difference. And so if you have kids who don't want to eat vegetables, you can eat the, they can, you know, you can serve them that and they're getting some vegetable content, at least per serving, they're going to get a quarter cup of vegetables. That is a pretty dramatic thing. And the food network just named that frozen nugget, the Purdue chicken plus nugget as the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America. So it's pretty amazing that at least according to food network, the best tasting frozen nugget is only half chicken and half plant-based. That's pretty awesome. And so you can see how the nutritional benefits of these blended products compared to the products that people might otherwise eat are pretty substantial. And the products are better off. It's not just that that they're better for you, but they really do taste better as well. I think your model's great. I mean, it it incentivizes large companies to reduce their usage of meat. Is there some sort of progressive approach that you see for the future of also encouraging them perhaps to increase the percentages of plant-based alternatives in these products? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, Eva. So our products are designed to be included at 30 to 50% inclusion, as I mentioned. But there are certain applications where you can go higher and still not notice a difference. And in fact, some of them you can go even to 100%, depending on the application. And what's really helpful for our customers is that our formulas are cheaper than meat. So, you know, if you look at the incumbents in the space of plant-based meat, typically their products are selling it anywhere from two to five times more expensive than commodity meat. Whereas our products are less expensive than beef. And so we can offer, you know, real savings. And so they have a real incentive to use as much of our product as they can in that particular case. And so we do want to see that, I mean, both from our own company's revenue standpoint, but also from a sustainability and mission standpoint, because our company, yeah, of course we have to make revenue in order to survive and, and, and bring a return to our investors, of course. But the goal of our company is to do as much good in the world as we can. And so with the sale of every pound of our product, we know that for the reasons that Ed was noting, we're making the world a better place. It's going to be less land use, less water use, fewer greenhouse gas emissions, less animal suffering, and more. And so we are highly incentivized to keep making our products better and better so that they can be used at even higher inclusion rates than what current customers are using them for. Yeah, what a lot of people don't, don't think about is that the conditions in the sort of industrial, you know, agriculture complex, like the, you know, the mass production of meat, you know, these big plants, um, pork plants, beef plants, chicken, so on, and farms, the conditions are, are actually, you know, not intentional. It's not like the farmers want to harm animals. It's that they can't produce them efficiently unless they do that. They can't produce them cheaply enough unless they do that. And it's because the process of, of producing protein from an animal is just super inefficient compared to producing it from plants. And so they have to distort nature in a sense 
in order to even bring it to a price point that people can afford? Yeah, and I think that you're you're pretty much hitting it on the head here in that nobody sat down and thought, let's create a system that causes animals to suffer. It's not like there was some farmer sometime who thought, ah, I want to put these chickens in these cages where they can't spread their wings for the rest of their life because I really hate chickens. What happened is the result of a completely unregulated system. And when you have total unregulation, uh, then you have a race to the bottom. And there have been essentially no rules for the treatment of farm animals in American history. And the last time the Congress passed a, a legislation to improve the treatment of farm animals was 1978. And there are no federal laws whatsoever that relate to the treatment of animals on farms. Only in the last uh, 15 or so years, have you started to see some states passing some modest regulations on how you can treat farm animals? And even those are extremely basic. Like they say, for example, that the animals must be able to turn around and extend their limbs. I mean, imagine if, if we you know made a rule for that for prisoners, right? Like, we, I mean, we don't treat murderers and rapists the way that we treat farm animals. We don't take them and put them in prison cells where they can't turn around or they can't spread their wings or you know, they can't raise their arms. But we do it to farm animals because there are no rules. And so I think that if you had rules that all of the producers had to adhere to so that you didn't have the better ones getting penalized in the marketplace by getting outcompeted by the less diligent ones, you'd have a much better situation. But because there are no rules, you've had this race to the bottom where you confine animals in smaller and smaller spaces, where you crowd them and overcrowd them wing to wing or snout to snout inside of, of these warehouses by the tens of thousands or even the hundreds of thousands per building. And that creates a system where it's not a matter of, of sadism. It's not a matter of, of somebody wanting to harm them. It's a matter of the suffering being a natural byproduct of this type of a system. And you need a level playing field for all producers to correct that. So shifting gears a little bit, the strategy that you have for your company is to be a, you know, B2B. So you're, nobody would know your brand unless they were probably in the food industry, you know, whereas Beyond Meat or Impossible have sort of, you know, built these more consumer oriented brands. Why did you decide to go in that direction? For a number of reasons, Ed. I mean, first and foremost, we want to have the maximum impact. And so we're not trying to compete against anybody in the marketplace. We're trying to help them do better. And so our goal is to help meat producers use fewer animals and more plants. And we know that we can do that by teaming up with as many of the big players as we can, rather than creating our own brand and trying to get from people to switch from the products that they've been buying before to our products. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we're a young company. As I mentioned, we're only two years old. We're small. We have only 11 full-time employees, but we have ingredients that are now in products that are in 7,100 grocery stores across America right now, several SKUs. And that wouldn't happen if we didn't have a B2B approach. Now we do favor an approach that does at least name us like a kind of like an Intel inside type of product where the, where the customer would tout that they are utilizing better meat co-protein. That's our preference. And in fact, when Purdue announced its chicken plus line, they did put out a press release about the fact that they were utilizing our technology and our products in there as, as an ingredient. And they, they quoted me in their press release. So it's not as if we were totally anonymized by it, but we're not on the product packaging, which we would like to be. And uh, that's something that we want to work toward in the future for sure. But I uh, I do think we can have a bigger impact as an ingredient company. And frankly, we wouldn't mind selling to plant-based companies as well in the future because we have some very innovative ingredients that we have pioneered through our own technological platform that I think could be helpful for them as well. 
I was going to also comment that I think in addition to factory farming, one of the challenges that we have is the perception of what meat should cost. If having lived in another country where meat is very expensive, for example, in Switzerland, I think you're right. All of this race to the bottom creates certain challenges. But also, do you ever think about your product being continuing that cycle of lowering costs for producers? Because that's ultimately what they're looking to do. You know, Eva, I I agree with you that in the beef case, we're not cheaper than chicken, but we are cheaper than beef. And in that case, I think what it's showing producers is that, hey, if you use fewer animals, you will save money. And that, I think, is an important message to them because we want the meat producers to see themselves not just as animal protein producers, but really as protein producers. We We want them to help to see just in the same way that Canon used to be a print film company and now it's a major digital film company. You know, they're still selling the same thing. They're still selling us memories of our lives, but now it's just in a different format. It's digital instead of gelatin film. And I think that, you know, they did that because they saw all the benefits to reduce, you know, dramatically reducing the cost per photograph of digital photography. And in our case, I think that we can do the same. In the same way that digital photography helped to reduce the cost per photo, we are going to help reduce the cost per gram of protein, but it'll be in a different way altogether so that it's not going to be just cheaper to raise animals. It's going to be cheaper for them to sell diversified protein that has a much lighter footprint on the planet. So let's turn to you and what gets you up ready to lead in the morning. We'd love to ask about our guests morning routines, including what they're drinking in the morning and maybe even in this case, what you're eating for breakfast. Do you have any habits or any sort of routine in the morning? Cool. I love this question. Yep. Okay, Eva. Yeah, I wake up earlier than my wife does. And so there's a whole routine that occurs in my life before she awakes. And after she awakes, my life takes a different turn. But here's what happens. So I'll wake up usually about like uh, 5.30, 5.45 in the morning. And I try to get out of bed quietly to avoid waking up our dog who is in bed with us. His name is Eddie. And he's not a morning dog. He really likes to sleep in. <laughs> and so I will meditate in the morning, usually for about 10 minutes. So not that long. I will then either go running or lift weights. So I vary it up every other day. So one day I run, the next day I lift. I used to try to be as fit as a, I believe that you all know Adam Bendel from Tonic as well. Uh, you guys are fr- yeah. friends with Adam, right? He yeah. So, yeah, he's a, a great guest on this show, but I've known Adam for several years and I've worked out with him. And despite the fact that he is, I believe, more than a decade my senior, this guy is just can outlift me in the gym, which is a, a real threat to my ego. So, uh, <laughs> and so, but I like to think I, I do a lot more cardio than he does. So, I need to lift more so I can get back into Adam's league. But so that's that. And then after working out for about an hour or so, I will then make a smoothie. And Eva, you know, I, I, I will tell you what goes into my smoothie, but I can assure you that not everybody is going to be impressed by it. What but is it? It's usually, I do it not for taste, but for function. And so it's usually a base of water, a fistful of pumpkin seeds. I'll put in uh, mint from our garden just to make it a little bit more palatable. I'll put in uh, a bunch of <laughs> raw broccoli <laughs> or uh, maybe raw spinach 
spinach, but usually raw broccoli and maybe like a third or even a half a can of pumpkin, some vanilla flavored protein powder. Not because I really think I need the protein, although I don't mind it, but it's more the the flavor that I really like on there. And so I, I might vary it up also. But then I, in addition to drinking the smoothie on its end every morning, I also mince a clove of garlic and ginger and uh, can, and drink that as well for immunity boosting purposes. So uh, either I'm going to die early or live very long, depending on whether you think this is actually healthy to do or not. But the, you know, you ask the question, that is my morning ritual. And what about coffee, tea, or caffeine free? Uh, I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. Um, and it's what? not for any reason other than that. I dislike the taste. <laughs> I've sipped it. Like I've, I've sipped it and it's just really disgusting to me. I wish I wasn't so because I believe that it's actually pretty healthy to drink. So I, I wish that I, I would consume it, but it, it's just too repulsive to me, honestly. So, but I do, um, I do yeah, drink green tea from time to time. I actually like putting matcha powder in my water. So I have like a bottle and I'll put, you know, fill it up with water and then put in like a teaspoon of matcha powder in it. So I, I have no aversion to caffeine. I presume it's fine. And I'm, uh, I just can't drink coffee. <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a smoothie and a half right there. Pumpkin seeds <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. pumpkin. No, it's, it, yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot. I can assure you. Um, I, I can assure you it's a lot. So you have a strong purpose in the mission of your company. How does that play out with your employees and your team? Well, uh, the leadership of our company is really uh, myself, Gus Patillo, who is our CTO, and Doni Kirkendall. She's our, our vice president of operations and logistics. And all three of us are very mission driven. And there are other people who work here who are also quite mission driven. And then we have other people who are, are certainly sympathetic to the mission. Their careers are in a particular field of science, and they really think that what we're doing is cool science. And so they really want to be here. And you know, they're they're again sympathetic to what what the mission is but not necessarily it's like you know their their life career so to speak and everybody here knows that we have a higher purpose it's emblazoned on the walls throughout our company we talk about it all the time and i like to use the analogy that john mackey does he's the founder and he's a co-founder and ceo of whole foods market and he made a great point in his book conscious capitalism and he's made this in many other places too. And that is that, you know, a company does not exist for the purpose of making money. Your body, for example, has to make red blood cells. If you don't make red blood cells, your body, you will die. That's the end. But it doesn't mean that that's the purpose of your body. You, the purpose of your body is whatever you determine it to be. Whatever you declare is your life's purpose, that's the purpose of your body to accomplish that. And in the same way, your company must make money. If you don't make money, your company will die. So you have to do it. But the purpose of your company is whatever you declare it to be. And so in his case, it's about promoting health and wellness through Whole Foods. In Google's case, it's about organizing all the world's information and making it easily accessible to anybody for free. You know, Amazon's purpose is to be the most customer-friendly company on the planet. Like everybody has a different purpose. And the purpose of the Better Meat Co is to help improve sustainability, to reduce humanity's footprint on the planet by reducing our food print because the planet is just not getting any bigger. Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting bigger. And one of the principal ways that we leave that footprint is through our food print, how much meat we are eating because it's such a resource intensive food. It causes so many problems like what we've been talking about. And so the purpose of our company is basically help reduce humanity's agricultural food print on the planet by ensuring that we can create ingredients that enable the major food makers to have a much lighter footprint themselves. Where do you think the industry is going? I would love to pivot in that direction um, in terms of sustainable agriculture and protein consumption and, and alternative meat products. Where, where is it going? I, I know that Beyond Meat 
has this kind of big vision. And I'd love to know where you think that the industry is going. Well, I think the success of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods is injecting enormous amounts of enthusiasm and capital into the space. There's an explosion of young startups that have been inspired by the pioneering work of those two companies to really bring on uh, really cool technologies. And so I think of it like if you consider companies like Tofurky as like the first generation of plant-based meat. So, you know, there have been plant-based meats going back hundreds of years. But if you think about like the modern era, like since the, you know, the 1980s forward, Tofurky really was the first company that was making products that were meat-like. And it wasn't fooling meat eaters, but it was designed for vegetarians to have something that was still meaty. Then you have like a second generation, which is companies like Impossible and Beyond, which are trying to perfectly mimic the taste and texture of meat. And they've done, I think, quite a good job. And I'll state again how much I admire what those companies have done and continue to do. And I think you're going to have third generation companies, which are, yes, trying to mimic that, but also doing it in a way where they're going to use clean label, allergen free probably, and utilizing microbes. So right now, pretty much all of the plant-based meat is either based on pea, wheat, or soy. And I think you're going to see a diversification of sources and inputs for plant-based meats that, yeah, some of them will come from other crops, whether it's oats or lentils or fava beans or chickpeas, but also from microbes. And so you see a lot of companies now who are growing meat-like products from microbes or, or other animal products too, not just meat. As an example, there are two companies, Perfect Day and Clara Foods, which are both using yeast to produce dairy proteins and egg proteins. Now, I don't mean that they're producing products that are like them or function like them. They're literally producing egg proteins and dairy proteins like whey protein and casein and so on without cows and without chickens. And they're producing them from yeast. And so I think that that will be another big part of this sustainable food movement is diversifying the inputs that go into these so-called alternative meats, whether it's coming from new different crops, again, like lentils or oats or, or fava beans and chickpeas and so on, and from microbial proteins as well. Thank you for laying that out. I really appreciate your kind of insight on the phases and where the industry could be going next. And as you mentioned, John Mackey earlier, and somebody that I also look up to in the conscious capitalism movement, as you know, he was able to kind of think beyond his initial business and think about where it would, where that industry would be going, the health food industry. And so I'm grateful that you're, you have that vision as well. Just as a last question to wrap up, if you were to see your company 10 years in the future, I know that's a long way off, but it could even be a very futuristic response. Where would you like it to be? We want to be the go-to solution for ingredients for plant protein. And so our company, The Better Meat Co., is young and small now, but our vision is quite grandiose. We want to be a one-stop shop solution for anyone who's interested in making better meat, whether that's animal meat they want to make better or plant-based meat that they want to make better, and even cultivated meat, which is grown from animal cells, which isn't yet on the market, but will be on the market in the coming years. Uh, that's the topic of, of the book that I wrote called Clean Meat. And I think we could be a, an ingredient provider to them as well. So our goal is to help big food producers do better, 
create better products and leave a lighter footprint on the planet. And right now we are doing that already to some extent, but we want to magnify it pretty dramatically so that we can actually have a different type of food industry that will leave a tangibly different footprint on the planet. Pat Brown from Impossible Foods really inspired me when he said that the goal of their company is to make Earth look different from space that there would be more forests because we were raising so many fewer animals and needed so much less land. And we want to be a part of that type of a future as well, where we can reduce our footprint on the planet so much that, yes, we will have fewer animals being raised for food and more animals in the wild enjoying life that they can't do right now. Thank you. After this conversation, I'm even more inspired to be a part of that movement. Really grateful for the role that you play not only with your company, but with your book and your podcast in the movement to have a social change and environmental change as well. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing that story with us as well. Eva and Ed, it's awesome to talk with you both. I really appreciate it and I admire what you're doing. Thank you for doing it. Yeah. Thanks for telling us your story today. It was really fun and good luck. You've got a big job ahead of you, but going to make a big difference. So make sure you keep eating mm-hmm. well and, and uh, <laughs> drinking those smoothies. Maybe add one in the evening too. Okay. Well, I can assure you, we, we need the luck. I can assure you. And there's a, a great line. It's often attributed to lots of different people. So I presume it's apocryphal for all of them, but I certainly did not invent it. But the line says, I'm a firm believer in good luck. The harder I work, the more of it I have. That's right. Uh, so that's right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.